on this episode of The Love and Life. See, we talk with Dr. Lydia Yeager about her new book, Ordinary Splendors. We cover all sorts of topics, particularly related to the doctrine of creation. So what do we mean when we declare that the world is created? And why is the doctrine of creation often limited, especially in Protestant Christian circles, to more scientific theories about the universe? Is this good or bad? What does it mean to say that creation is a gift? What does it look like to exercise dominion and some level of independence from creation's laws without revolting against the order of creation? Why is solitude not a sign of independence but of need and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by our expert, medieval theology expert, uh, Ryan Modisette. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And if you're new to the show, if you've never listened before, one way we've tried to explain that is with a couple of intellectual virtues in mind, because we want to create or encourage sort of a culture that prizes particular modes of thought. Things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Because we think um, there is a need for more curiosity in our day. Not curiosity in the vain sense, but curiosity as an openness to wondering wisely. To being interested in other people uh, for their own sake and saying, you know what? You're a person and you hold this view. I want to know why. Tell me more about it. Explain to me why you're thinking that way. And we also think that a confessionalism is is helpful and healthy for Christians to, whether that's just the Apostles' Creed or or that's more robust if you want to go into sort of the, the standard Protestant confessions, where we're saying this is what we believe, but we can do it cheerfully without being a total jerk about it. We, we can say, look, we can agree on these sort of things, and we can together confess these as Christians. So we have a lot of people on the podcast who are all over the map, whether that's theologically speaking, philosophically speaking, or geographically speaking. And today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Lydia Yeager. Um, she's written a book recently with Lexham Press called Ordinary Splendor, Living in God's Creation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you don't know about this book, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. If you don't know about Lexham, Lexham does a tremendous job of creating beautiful books that are just really aesthetically pleasing and a pleasure to read. So even if you didn't like what Lydia wrote, I mean, you just open this book and you're just thinking, wow, this is just really nice way, like the typesetting's done well. There's these really beautiful sort of like cutout pages with like this background. I th- It's just really cool. So Lydia, I- I'm thrilled to talk about this book with you. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about yourself. Give me a little bit of background. And then what was it that sort of spurred, hey, I want to write this particular book? So I'm based in France, close to Paris. Uh, I work and teach at an evangelical international Bible college there, which is just called after the town, Nogent-sur-Marne. I'm German. I came to France um, because I had a call to mission work, and I did my theology in France. I had, I had done my physics in Germany and then came to France to do my theology and ended up doing a PhD in philosophy of science as well. And yeah, I, this book really came out uh, in a certain sense out of my PhD. Uh, at the end of my PhD, our principal asked me, I was already teaching in our college during my PhD, and 
our principal asked me to speak at a retreat day for our uh, staff members. And I said to him, but why would I speak about my PhD uh, on a retreat day? Nobody would want to hear about my PhD on a retreat. And then he, he just said to me, oh, but if, um, if you can't take anything out of your PhD, which is not worthwhile for the ordinary Christian and their, their lives, then it, yeah, you have lost your time writing your PhD. And if your principal tells you, so you have to obey it. So I had to talk at this uh, retreat day. And this started me um, on this journey to think about creation on a more, say, practical level and to really think about the question, what does it mean to believe in creation and what does it mean for our ordinary life? So this is the title of the book, Ordinary Splendor. Um, what does it really mean to live in God's creation? And this is how it all started. Now, Ryan's going to ask all the really smart questions. I'll ask the, the, the basic ones here. So I'll start with just give me a sense for what does it mean when we are saying, when we declare that the world is created? Like what, what's going on there? I mean, I imagine a lot of Christians have a baseline understanding. But for those that may not, give me your sort of like short little pitch on what that sounds like. Yeah, I'm not very original on this, and I think on basic doctrines it's better not to be original. Uh, when people ask me to define in fact creation, or in fact when I teach the doctrine of creation to my students, I always use the definition by Louis Berkhoff in his Systematic Theology. And if I may just read it, creation in the strict sense of the word may be defined as that free act of God whereby he in the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of pre-existent material, and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on him. So typically I spend two hours with my students unpacking this definition. Um, so I'm not going to, to talk uh, two hours about this definition, but just uh, to give you the, the bullet point. So it's, it's, a free, it's, a, it's an act of God. So creation is, is the act of God and the triune uh, God. And it's a free act of God. That's very important. This really sets apart creation from other uh, ideas about the origin of the world. So it's not emanation. The world is, is, yeah, is contingent, not necessary. So that's really important also for the dialogue with science. And then in the beginning, yeah, creation sets a temporal beginning to this world. The whole universe, visible and invisible. So, and in fact, this is then is explained once again without the use of pre-existent material. So this is the famous ex nihilo bit of the doctrine of creation, uh, which has a double meaning. It means that God didn't create the world from anything pre-existent, therefore that everything that exists is either created or God himself. There is no, nothing in between. And it also means that God didn't create from, from his own uh, nature. Therefore, so this excludes emanation, this includes any form of pantheism or panentheism. And then the last, so thus it, he gave the word an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on him. Yet this double truth about creation. Creation is always dependent on him and it's, yeah, 
it's also distinct from him. And you can develop from, from this alone, you can develop, um, say, the, the yeah, covenant. Uh, I would say you can get all of the fundamental beliefs, even about um, yeah, the articulation between human responsibility and freedom and God's sovereignty out of this duality of the doctrine of creation. So it's really fundamental or, yeah, you get out, say, your doctrine of inspiration depends on this, etc. Now, when I when I think about the doctrine of creation, at least in my American context, it seems that oftentimes it's very limited to scientific questions about the origin of the universe. Is that a good or a bad thing? And is that something that you experience in France or in Germany or other places? I don't have a good context for if those are the same questions that are being asked. Yeah, they, uh, I think the debate is both similar and different. Um, and is it a good thing that when we talk about creation, people want to talk about scientific theories about the origin of the universe? Even there, I would say yes and no. In a certain sense, yes, because it, it means that we really try to talk as theologians or to think as Christians about the world we live in. And this is the world which is created by science. So we don't want to, to, to have a split between faith and knowledge. Between, so, yeah, yeah, we have to, to hold it together. Therefore, it's a good question, and we have to ask this question. But on the other hand side, I would say it's a bad thing because it's too often it's limited to this question. So I, I meet Christians who don't want to talk about creation at all because they don't want to get into debates about evolution, about Big Bang. And so they, they think that they, can, that they have to put aside creation and better not talk about it. And in a certain sense, this book was written in order to show that you can talk about creation and say a lot about creation without even starting to talk, to talk about any scientific theory about the origin uh, of the universe or about, say, living beings. I've, I've written on this subject elsewhere, but I wanted to, to start out, in fact. Um, so Ordinary Spelling was written in French before, in fact, I published anything on, on evolution and this debate. And I really wanted to write a book which makes it clear that all Christians believe in creation, all Christians should believe in creation, um, and they should understand that it's very fundamental for their lives. Given what you said about creation, how do we understand what it means to be human? Uh, and how, do we, how should we understand our relationship to God, since everything depends on Him, absolutely? Yeah, so creation is a very fundamental doctrine, and it, in, in a certain sense, it, defi it defines anything we can say. So it's, it's not by happenstance that the Bible opens on the doctrine of creation. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and so if you take humanity, obviously you have um, this very important teaching on human beings being created in the image of God. Um, and it, it means that humans have a very special relationship to God. So they are, um, in a certain sense, they're, yeah, you could say they are predisposed to enter into a covenantal 
relationship with God. So they're conscious about their relationship to God. And there are, in a certain sense, uh, vis-a-vis, I don't know if you use the French word as well in English, so the vis-a-vis for God, obviously a created vis-a-vis, so not an equal partner for God, but still a vis-a-vis um, who, enters, who can enter into a conscious relationship with God and uh, who can adore him. And then humans are also image of God for the rest of the created world. So uh, we look into, uh, say, the, the ancient Near Eastern context, the image of God is, uh, I think, in the ancient Near Eastern context, really means a kind of representative of God. And so this really puts an emphasis on the role humans play in this world. And they have uh, a specific role to play in, um, yeah, in ruling over, over this world, which means that they, their rule should represent God's rule and therefore not being explosive but really help the, the, the rest of the creation or at, the, at least of the terrestrial creation to develop its potential. So one thing I was wanted to cap, capitalize on by asking you because I think it's really a really nice turn of phrase and explanation is when you talk about creation as a gift what does that exactly mean? Because um, to me that sort of language just kind of like really opens up the topic in my mind. So I'd love to hear you just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, the, the idea of creation as a gift uh, ca- really came into my mind when I was reading uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, novel, Nausea. Um, there you have um, yeah, a man writing so a fictive journal, and he, his idea is that the world is just there. So it's it's really when you when you read this um, this novel you get the idea. It's a person who experiences the world as just there, and perhaps just to give you a feeling of of, of how it feels like, I will just give you a quote from uh, the nausea. Um, I exist by what I think, and I can't prevent myself from thinking. It is I. It is I who pull myself from the nothingness to which I aspire. Hatred and disgust for existence are just so many ways of making me exist, of thrusting me into existence. So, I exist, but I exist without transcendent foundation. I'm not created. And therefore, in a certain sense, it's myself and my own thinking who brings me into existence or who keeps me into existence. And I can't escape this existence. And I was reminded of Martin Luther's famous explanation of what it means that God has created the world. In fact, I had to learn this explanation in my catechism class uh, when I was a youngster. And um, it really brings about what it means to receive this world as a creation. So it's, Luther starts out by saying, I believe that God has made me and all creatures that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. And then he goes on and he enumerates clothing, shoes, food, drink, etc. And then he says, all this he does only out of faithfully divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all of this it is my duty to think and praise, serve and obey him. And when you read Luther, after having read Sartre, 
you, you want to change what he says because he says, for all this, it is my duty to thank and praise. And you would you would want to say, oh, it's my it's my pleasure. It's it's a, it's my joy to thank and praise, serve and obey him because it means that I'm not living in a senseless world. I'm not living in a world which just exists, but the existence of this world comes out of a plan and my own ex existence has a sense and a purpose and i'm i can receive all yeah all um, that exists as as good and as a gift and i was reminded i think it was philip yankee who said that he he turned to be a christian because in fact he he realized that as an atheist he couldn't say thank you for all the wonder of this world. So it's perhaps a rather different way to come to faith than most people, but that was the goodness of nature and the frustration not to be able to say thank you for it that turned him to faith. I don't want to take us too far afield, but I really like this idea of thinking about creation as a gift. But how would you distinguish in your mind the giftedness of creation from the gift of grace? You know, we often think about um, grace as a gift. And um, do you worry that talking about creation as a gift might blur the lines between what God gives in creation and what God gives in giving himself? Uh, no, I don't worry about it. <laughs> Obviously, you need to distinguish very clearly about creation and grace. Um, but um, my worry is more that we underestimate the gift of creation. So at least if I say we, so in the in the broader, say evangelical world where I um, where I live and work, um, and um, then we should also remind ourselves that redemption, salvation is recreation. So um, it, it restores creation by God's grace. It goes beyond creation. Um, so the, the glory of the, of, the, of the new heavens and new earth goes beyond the glory of the first creation. But it's still creation, or it's, it's a new creation. And therefore, I would say we are on the same storyline. Obviously, there is a danger, I would say, not to overestimate creation, <laughs> but to underestimate sin. So that for sure. Um, we should never forget that sin is the intruder into God's creation and that it's real and that it's awful and that it's just bad. <laughs> but uh, and in this sense, there is, a, there is a difference between grace and creation because grace repons, um, yeah, answers to creation. But creation is a gift, grace is a gift, and it's a gift by the same creator. So I'd love for you to tease out, there's a couple of sections I'd really like to hear your thoughts on. And one of those is early on in the first, I don't know what chapter this is, I guess chapter three, I'm talking about inhabiting an existing order. You talk about this idea of exercising dominion, which I think it, that the terminology makes a lot of sense for people who've read Genesis, um, and some level of independence from creation's laws, but you talk about doing that without revolting against the order of creation. I would just love for you to like walk me through the, sort of the thought process there, the logic that's there, and how we should think about that as Christians. Yeah, it has very different implications. So from ecology, our care for the so creation care, uh, to perhaps what we could say about totalitarianism or um, epistemology. 
Um, but so the basic idea is that we as humans, we live in a world that we have not created. So we, we receive it as a gift and it's a world we have not created and it's entrusted into our responsibility and care. And therefore, um, so if, if you read the, the Genesis texts, you, you get the understanding that humans live in a created order. Um, for example, the, the first thing humans are called to be is to respect the Sabbath rest, you know, the seventh day. Um, this is the very first thing they do. And then, it, but it doesn't mean that humanity is just there, um, say, inactive, just passive, just receiving everything. You get this topic of uh, yeah, dominion over the earth. And um, so the, it's, it's a, the paradise is a garden, which is very interesting. It's not, a, it's not an untouched jungle. So the, the idea that humanity should return to some, um, I don't know, symbiosis with nature and just try to keep um, our hands off from creation is not really what, is, what you find in Genesis. So it's garden. Garden is, is yeah, um, I think a garden is a very good metaphor for what it means to live in a world which you have not created where you respect the laws of this world, and then you, um, but you bring it to to a higher potential. So in a certain sense, the garden is more beautiful than untouched nature. So there is place for untouched nature as well. So I'm not saying that we should turn all the earth into a garden, but um, but the garden is is beautiful in a different sense. But a garden only works with the laws of nature, and. Even Francis Bacon says this for science. Yeah? He's, so there's a famous quote from Francis Bacon, so this, this very early, what you call scientists, even if they didn't use the word at that time, so at the very start of the modern times, he said, we cannot command nature except by obeying her. So even all our science, all our technology, only uh, works by using uh, the laws of nature. And obviously, in our in our age and time, we become more aware of, um, yeah, the importance to respect also some some life circles, etc. And that if we just want to go on and yeah, extend our dominion, yeah, even farther ahead, then we will really get into trouble because we are not respecting the, uh, the yeah the life cycles, etc. of our planet. But it also, so this is ecology. I think this is the, the topic that really comes to our minds very easily, and in a certain sense, it links to the Garden of Eden. But there are, there are other uh, implications. So, a quote from Hannah Arendt, you know, that uh, 20th century uh, philosopher um, and yeah, political scientist. And she, she wrote, and I think we really have to ponder this, that totalitarianism with its goal of complete control of society and of individuals, comes from the, and uh, this is what she says, comes from the resentment of the fact that one is not the creator of the universe and of oneself. So um, there is something in the very idea to gain complete control, even complete con political control over individual humans, is linked to the idea that I want to be the only creator of this world, and I don't want to respect um, the yeah what Abraham Kuyper would call 
the spheres of creation, yeah, um, where the family has its own functioning, the church, economics, etc. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you want to if you want to go into epistemology, but you have this tendency in some quarters at least where epistemology uh, also tries to get rid of some preordained order. So famously, um, Kant perhaps, yeah, where where Kant has a, a theory of knowledge where, in a certain sense, we can only know what we've created. Yeah? And so we know, in a, yeah, we know only the structures inherent in our spirit, which then model the, the world we experience. And this is the part we can know. And then there is this Ding an sich, this thing in itself, but which we can't know. And this is, so Kant says it does exist, but what we can only know are the phenomena, which are created, in fact, by, in a certain sense, by us or by the interaction between our spirit and um, our experience of the world. And that once, once again, you get this kind of scepticism, but which comes out of the idea that we can only know what we have created. And I think there, um, say, in epistemology coming out of the, uh, of the biblical worldview is very different. And it's not an obstacle at all that we live in a world um, that we have not created. Instead, we are, we are created to know this world. You mentioned earlier that part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to have this representative function. And that gift of being in the image is given to humanity as both male and female. Do you think there's special significance in the fact that the role is given to humanity as gendered, as both male and female, and is there a sense in which men and women can partner together to um, faithfully reflect God's glory as image bearers? Yeah, it's a very striking feature of the Genesis text, of both, uh, both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, um, the importance on the difference or the distinction between man and woman. Um, Karl Barth, said that this is the only difference which goes back to creation. It's, it's the only distinction which is in the creation text themselves, which tells you something about the importance of this difference uh, compared to other differences, which are not mentioned and I would say even are relativized. So any social differences, any, say, questions of, of richness or has a power, yeah, or even political power, our, our race, so this is not at all a concept, at least of the, the Genesis texts. Uh, you get later on, you don't get race, but you get nations and people, so they, that's very different. Um, but, um, yeah, so but there is, there is a fundamental distinction. And um, what the texts, I think, say, uh, in a nutshell, are two. Is you, once again, in, in the Bible, you very, you very often get a kind of dual truth, and you have to keep both sides of the coin together. So, woman and man share in the same humanity. Yeah? Um, they are both created in the image of God. And that is quite revolutionary in the context of the ancient Near East. And, um, of the ancient Near East. You, so, the very idea, in fact, that every human being is created in the image of God is revolutionary. You have the idea that uh, kings are 
images of God, sometimes priests, but the very idea that all human beings are uh, images of God, you get it perhaps in one obscure Egyptian text, and even this text is debated. So it's, it's a unique feature of the, of the Genesis text in their cultural setting. And there you have this idea that woman and man share in the same uh, humanity, and in Genesis 1 in the same calling. There's no difference at all in their calling. So you get differences, you could say, yeah, differences worked out in the second creation account in Genesis 2, but not in Genesis 1. And uh, so if you take, if you use Genesis, but then if you take other texts from the New Testament as well, I think you can argue that the difference between uh, man and woman is a representation on the stage, on the theater stage of this world, of the relation between the creator and the creation. So there is a theological meaning to this difference, to this distinction. It's as if God had put into this world, so he has put into his world his representative, humanity, but then he has, cre he has created um, a humanity with the fundamental distinction between man and woman, and this is a, represent a representation in this world of the relationship between the creator and the uh, creature. So where man then represents the creator and woman the creature. Uh, it's, so if you want to have an image, it's, it's like a, an artist painting himself, painting himself. And therefore you get a theological meaning or, or sense of this relationship. And there is, I think you, a lot you can draw it out for your theology of marriage, for your, yeah, and, and other topics as well. So if, you, if Ryan asked this already, or you talked about it already, just tell me that. But I'm catching what you caught here at the end. And your, your work here on sexuality is just very interesting to me. And one of the comments that you made is, I mean, woman is, is second and man is first. What exactly does that mean? Can you walk me through that? Yeah, perhaps one note of caution. I, this book wasn't written for an American context in the first place. And I had an extended discussion with um, with the editor, and I really thank Alexan Press for the excellent work they did uh, about this part of the text because they they said to me you, the pages you've written they will just read like an echo to recent debates in North America, and people will think that you take sides in this debate. So we reworked even sentences, part of sentences, to avoid this impression. And just as a disclaimer. Uh, it was written in a European context, and so it's not. You shouldn't try to find uh, how I so how I place myself in any recent North American debate. But obviously, the the question is there in Europe as well, and um, yeah, it's really. I think we we have to keep together these these two truths that women and men share the same humanity, the same calling. Genesis one. But that there is a distinction. It's there. It's a gendered humanity, and I I know that as soon as you say that man is first and woman second, we always take this as um, or many take this as a kind of um, negative for women and just uh, perpetuating say yeah this kind of patriarchal say domination etc. 
I just try to read honestly the text and I can't make sense of uh, especially say Ephesians 5 or even 1 Corinthians 11 without saying there is an order it's it's not it's not you can't just interchange you know, or exchange man and woman but it's not it's not an order of value or of dignity and one argument uh, for this is uh, so it's obviously the shared humanity both are created in the image of God but is a text uh, as first Corinthians 11 which I think allows you to make a parallel so I know that this is debated and once again I'm not relating to to any uh, so I'm not saying this theologian is right on this, but just a very basic truth which I get out of 1 Corinthians 11 is that there is a parallel between, say, the place of man and woman and between the father and the son in the Trinity. Um, and um, so if if you accept this, then you, you clearly see that the son is in no way inferior to the father. But even for the Trinity, it's an ordered community and I think communities need yeah needs to be ordered and um, so what does it mean in practice I would say we have to work this out in very specific contexts and so if you read the preface of this book you will understand that this book came out of a sermon series so if you want say if you want a kind of personal word on this so I preach in my church I'm part of the pastoral leadership in my church and I'm uh, I'm very happy to to be part of a leadership team where yeah men and women or men and and women work together and uh, in a harmonious way. So if I say that man is first, woman is second, it doesn't mean at all that women has have just to be silent and yeah stay at home or whatever we uh, specific culture understands about uh, the place of women. We really have to work it out. And perhaps in different cultural settings, it can mean also different things. But it certainly means that men are not women and women are not men, and that there is a distinction in roles and and. Yeah, we can happy about this and say so just yeah. As this is a kind of personal note, I just add another <laughs> autobiographical note. Um, I was academic dean in my school for over twenty years, and when I was asked to take over this role, and I thought about it, I obviously thought about uh, the place of women in leadership positions, and I talked to to a very dear um, friend and mentor, I, I can name him, Henri Blocher, he's a theologian, very important in my own spiritual journey. And I asked him this, and so among different things, he said to me, always lead as a woman. Don't try to imitate male style, male style of leadership. I must say that I would have a hard time to explain that it, what it means to lead as a woman. But it was certainly a counsel, which, an advice which stayed with me and which had an influence on my way to inhabit my leadership role. That's fascinating. So uh, I I've love Henri Blochet, so I didn't know that you guys were connected or in a sim similar place. So I found his work really helpful, too. So that's just cool that you said that. Um, <laughs> now, I, I mean... There's another thing you mentioned in the book. You were talking about solitude, and I think there was a line where you said solitude's not a sign of independence but of need. I thought that was really interesting. So I would love to hear more about what that means and how you're thinking about that. Because I think, at least in my American context, in a lot of uh, 
sort of like pietistic movements, there's been like a solitude is a spiritual discipline and we should all seek it because it's a profoundly good thing. It's a, and it, they will take the language of uh, that you find in in the Psalms where be still and know that I am the Lord and say, this is sort of like a, a practice that you should be engaging in frequently, regularly. So how does that map onto that sort of idea or what are you trying to work out there? Yeah, so the solitude the psalmist speak about is not a, it's not a, say it's not an absolute. So first of all, he's with God, and then he regular plays in, in the community as well. So it's, um, uh, it's more there. I think it's a question of the balance between times of solitude and times of communion. On a very fundamental level, I think this is one striking feature of Genesis 2, that in the middle of this very good creation, there is one sentence about, and the only sentence, what is not good. <laughs> and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper to his companion. So there is something in creation. I would say this is because creation is not is not finished yet. So it's it's not inherently bad. So I, because creation is very good, this is the this is the message of Genesis one. But if say God had stopped there, so to speak, and there was just just the man and perhaps just one man, so um, that that would not be good. And I think this is uh, this is a principle that that is linked to the fact that humanity is created. So God is alone, but even God is not alone. He's, 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 a, communion, he's a communion of persons, but there's one God and only one God. Um, but humans were never meant to be yeah, solitary. And there are, as created, they are defined by relations. So the first and foremost relation is the relation to the creator. This is absolutely fundamental. But this vertical relation uh, then is reflected on the horizontal uh, yeah, line or on the horizontal space in, in different relations. Obviously in, not in one relation, but in several relations because no other creature can just be like God. So we have just one relation to our creator and then many different relations to other human beings. And by the way, even to non-human living beings or the non-living world. But so humans as created are yeah, created in relationship, in relationship to God, in relationship to other humans. And then you could also say that the, this kind of relational structure of humanity is also part of being in God's image because God is, is a communion of persons, so is a community of persons. And therefore, humanity yeah, reflecting God also reflects this communal aspect, perhaps, of God, if so I'm not using very, very rigorous Trinitarian language. So I'm trying to speak a more ordinary language. So don't, uh, um, but just we have to, and, and, and this is a side, I think, which is important as well. And it links in a certain sense to what I said earlier about the theological significance of the distinction between man and woman. So there is a theological uh, dis, um, yeah, implication or significance of the fact that we as humans live in communion. And so when we come to the discipline of solitude, yes, I think it's very important. And uh, we live in a world where 
it's very difficult, in fact, to be silent and to be really on your own. But uh, even already Blaise Pascal said this, so it's not a new problem, but I think we have um, perfected our, <laughs> our way just to disperse ourselves and to, to get away from, from serious thinking uh, about our condition, our human condition, and so about our mortal condition. This is one point Blaise Pascal uh, Solain, um, yeah, emphasizes. But I would say the main distraction from spending time alone with God, and there is a place for it, is, are probably not other human beings, but our, our smartphones, our screens, or whatever inside, um, just that, we, that it's very difficult to, be, um, to concentrate even on one relationship and on one task. And if we learn to be still and listen to God, this, I think, is a very good preparation also to be still and listen to other human beings and to be really in relationship because uh, very often, uh, yeah, you know this as well as myself, so you don't meet just with one person, you also meet with a person and his or her smartphone, for example. And so we really need to, to learn once again to listen. But I would say listen, so this attitude of listening is the very opposite, opposite thing of being in solitude. And perhaps if I can add something about this pietistic uh, tradition, it's my own tradition, and I'm very grateful for this. Um, and so it's part of my upbringing to have this personal quiet time, as we call this, and I think it's a very, very good discipline. Um, but it's, it's not something opposed to communion or to community. And perhaps we have to... I, I wouldn't say that we have to rediscover the, the importance of community in, if we think about the best of pietistic tradition, because pietism was very much about the establishment of, of communities of believers inside the wider church. So it was there with, with Spain, but perhaps we have to remind ourselves of this aspect. Yeah, so you have been working at the intersection of science and theology for some time now. What advice would you give to Christians who are really interested in science and want to do more research in science, but who might be afraid that their beliefs conflict with science? I know earlier in the discussion you mentioned that you don't see a conflict there, but what would you say to somebody who's starting out and their convictions are not as firm there as they should be? Obviously, so I, I would say try to gain a Christian view of science and really to understand how to articulate the biblical worldview with science. So when I, when I talk about um, science and the Christian faith, uh, even in public conferences, I'm invited to speak about this subject, I always try to focus on showing the the concordance, I would say the concordance between the biblical worldview of creation in particular, but even, even of the foreign world. So this is something Peter Harrison has worked on, uh, um, historians of science, who has shown that, the, that a very strong Augustinian understanding of original sin um, was important in developing the scientific method at the start of the modern times. So this is less well known. But say creation, and you can even argue sin, were very important doctrines at the 
start of modern science. And there is, um, there is harmony between, there's a deep harmony between the scientific methodology and the political worldview. And I think it's very important to get this clear before you start then to worry about this or that scientific result and you, you, you try to, to, to understand what, as a Christian, you should think about evolution or about the Big Bang or about neurosciences, etc. You really need to do this, this homework. And, and there are, um, obviously, there are, um, I would say, very good resources um, there are a lot of books uh, on this subject. There are networks. So in the American context, uh, I can think of the American Scientific Affiliation. And um, so affirming both say, the yeah, a biblical view of creation and, and the importance of science. And so and probably try to get a mentor and really try to, to walk through these questions with... Um, if possible, with an older scientist, Christian was a scientist, so has worked this out. Uh, I work in France very closely with um, the French branch of IFES, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. I think over in the States it's called InterVarsity Fellowship, if I'm right. And so we have, so in France it's called the Groupe Biblique Universitaire. And um, so we, do, we developed recently, we've developed recently um, a mentoring program where we link um, PhD students, um, Christian PhD students in the sciences with, um, say, experienced scientists in their branch who are Christians. And they, they try to, yeah, to help them to think about what they're doing uh, in a Christian way. And they started, that's a very easy thing to do. We started a, a reading group. So on Zoom, so this is one of the blessings of Zoom, you don't have to be in the same place. So we started a reading group with, with this group of PhD students, and uh, we decided last year to read Certillon, um, a classic, the, um, the, I don't know, the Intellectual Life, I think, is what it's translated into, into English. And it was, a, it was a great reading group, and now we're discussing what we're going to read next, and maybe Leslie Newbigger, and yeah, people offer different books, um, so it doesn't mean that we agree with, with everything which is in these books, but it keeps us, it opens our minds, it helps us to think as Christians about our scientific practice, and it gives these PhD students um, a setting where they can think about this as a group and perhaps with some older, more experienced Christians as well. Well, Lydia, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to walk us through this. And as a reminder, everybody who's listening, you will there will be a link to this book that you can get a copy of it's it's very readable it's only 160 ish pages so that's that's really nice size for local churches if you want to have uh, a volume that to work through some of these ideas i think this is a really nice a nice place to start so thanks lydia this has been awesome and as always for everybody's listening thanks for tuning in to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.